We're going to press on today into our study of 1 Peter 5. This is pretty much the last of this trilogy when we talked about who our enemy is in chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 8, and identified him and looked at a lot of information about the evil one, and so we would know our enemy, not only his power and his realm, but also his limitations and his condition of being already conquered, essentially, and having that flail, that final flail of rebellion against God, against his people, against his created order. And we have seen that, and we studied that. We then looked at our response to the evil one last week, uh, largely based in verse 9, and again, recognizing that we serve a different dominion. We didn't quite finish verse 9. We also uh, looked at some of the things in verse 8. Uh, we want to look at the last half of verse 9 and look into verse 10 this morning as we look at the results, not the final results. We're going to look at those next week as we look at, talk about some aspects of the eternal glory of Christ and the glory and dominion forever and ever. We're going to look at the final results of engaging the enemy next week. This week we're going to look about into the, re, the recent, the, the nearby results, the, the very quickly upon us in, our, in this world, in this time, what are the results of standing in opposition against the evil one? And again, we are not attacking him, we are defending ourselves against his attacks, we are called to resist the devil, to stand fast, we have that repeated for us over and over again, that we are to withstand him and that we are to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so it is not an assault on his realm, for this is the realm that he claims today. And the one that will remove him from this realm is not you or I, it is not the church united, it is Jesus Christ and him alone. And we wait for his soon arrival. And so uh, while we engage in this defensive stand against the evil one, there are some results in, our, in, these, in this time and in this place. Now, we're not ignorant, I don't think, of the final results. And that'll be exciting next week to look at that, I hope. That that'll be something we can look forward to and say, oh, this is the end game, to know the full outcome. But yet we have uh, this theme throughout Peter. Remember, one of the three major themes of Peter is that the believers endure suffering in this realm, in this time, Uh, that this is the expected experience of all believers who are faithfully walking after Christ. And uh, as it is the experience, as the expected experience, we should be well prepared and have some backbone about us spiritually that we are not just flailing around Uh, like a fish out of water and gasping, uh, but rather that we know um, this was coming, we were prepared, we were ready, and when it comes, we just grit our teeth a little bit, we take our stand, and we praise God in the midst of this. And this is uh, an odd response, because usually we want to go a different route, because we've been taught to be victims, and we're really good at it. And so we'll complain, we'll put our head down, we'll grumble, we'll, we'll go, woe is me, um, and, uh, and try to seek sympathy and 
uh, none of that is in accordance with being prepared for the outcome of engaging the enemy. Rather, it is quite the opposite. What we should be doing is rejoicing, uh, praising God. We should be uh, being thankful for it means that we are counted worthy of suffering for his name's sake. And we have looked at so many of those passages over the study of 1 Peter as we've gone into the, the Old Testament, into the book of Acts, into the Gospels, and really looked at the pattern of suffering that we have seen in our predecessors of the faith. That this is the evidence, if you will, that we are doing that which is pleasing to God when it disrupts and disturbs the enemy to such a degree that he attacks us. Remember in Acts, it begins by attacking So we have this calling to be something very radically different from the world. When we, when we see the world suffer, they want to sponge off their victimization. Whereas we, rather, having been prepared for that, are ready to receive it, knowing that it is the demonstration that we are living out our faith effectually to such a degree that Satan sees the necessity of attacking us. And as I said, he starts with the leadership. We're called to pray for our leaders because of that, knowing that that is where they are going to, that Satan's going to begin. And then we recognize that once he has done that, he will attack the body of Christ uh, generally, and so we need to be prepared for that as well, and to recognize that once the leadership has been attacked, it is not very far historically, and this has been not just in the biblical period, but all through church history, that they will go then right down the line and seek to uh, destroy the church uh, largely among its base. And of course, every time that's happened historically, we have found that the church has prospered. The church has multiplied. The church has been strengthened. Uh, we think, well, if they're going to attack it in that way, that that's going to diminish the church, but quite the opposite. And this is not just because uh, opposition leads to transformation. It is because transformation leads to opposition. If we are transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and we are living out our faith to such a degree that we, that we are salted for our faith, that transformation of living our lives for Christ is what is making the difference. Because we are ready to suffer for his name's sake, we are mature enough in our faith to do so with great joy, and that is what impresses people. It's not how much did you suffer, and that impresses me, it is how you suffered. And the only way that we are going to suffer with joy and without hate and without desire for revenge and without victimization is by being mature in the faith. And hence, Peter's calling to us is that we should know something about the development of our faith. All right, I'm back on. Sorry for that interruption. So we come to First uh, Peter, and we find that the last half of verse 9 tells us knowing knowing something. So we are to resist the devil. We are to stand fast in the faith. Uh, we are to be sober, be vigilant. Uh, we looked at all of those last week. And now there's one more element. And that is we are to be, have a knowledge of something. We should know this. That it is the common experience of those who are genuinely walking in righteousness and in truth to encounter suffering. And so he says it this way, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood 
in the world. This is a universal experience of all those who walk by faith, who walk in such a radical manner that people have a negative response to them. And you might say, well, Pastor, in America for the last 250 years, we've really enjoyed this this kind of calm and uh, that we haven't really encountered that kind of opposition. And you're right, and that should concern you. That tells you something about American Christianity that should concern you. Now, there were, there were periods of time that um, the uh, power and the effect of just really a handful of godly men in this country produced some uh, very dramatic changes in our country that when you talk to historians, they say, oh, that was just a great failure, but it wasn't a great failure. And so if you want to go back into the 1920s and you want to look at the powerful effect of, of uh, men of God like D.L. Moody and, um, oh, I can't think of his name. It just escaped me. The baseball player. Billy Sunday, and you look at these men and their impact of just calling people out, not only to make a decision for Christ, but to recognize that now you can no longer have this, that, that alcohol is destroying cultures, it destroys families, and it has no place among Christian uh, at all. And now, if we're going to be a Christian country, when you think of how many of this country listened to D.L. Moody, listened and attended functions, not online, not on their phones, they had to travel many miles, sometimes days, to hear these men preach in tents and in coliseums, uh, in, in not just, usually not in churches. Uh, and the great transformation that happened in this country that produced prohibition. And uh, what when you look at that, they'll say, well, prohibition was a mistake. It was an experiment that didn't succeed. And you're wrong. If you do the real research and look at what was the impact of prohibition upon our society, well, here was a generation that took this seriously, wanted to, to communicate the righteousness of God to an uh, entire people group, to our entire country. The country responded by passing a a, a, a prohibition. That wasn't the law that came down upon them. It was the law that the people chose. Isn't that amazing? The people chose that. That's the effect of men of God standing and proclaiming the truth of God without compromise, yet in love. Now, is there always going to be evil men that are going to oppose that? Certainly. We do not ever claim that the whole nation became Christian, not by a long shot. But for that period of time, we look at the impact of those preachers, and it is no wonder that modern historians look back and say, oh, that was a huge mistake, and those people, and they want to vilify these men that actually had such a tremendous impact upon our country that it transformed it even to the point of legislation that was produced not the top down, but from the base up. And you look at the statistics of that period of time during Prohibition, and you'll see the divorce rate just plummet. No one was getting divorced. You look at violence in the homes, plummeted. You looked at all of the violent crimes, plummeted, to the point that they had to establish something called barbershop quartets. You know who made up a majority of barbershop quartets? Ex-cops. 
because there's no crime. Think about that. Most barbershop quartets were comprised of ex-police officers because there was no crime to keep a large police force. That's what our world was like, this nation was like, because the men of God stood up and proclaimed the truth of God without compromise and demanded the righteousness of God out of those who called his name. And then it was assaulted. It didn't last long. It seldom can because of the inclination of the hearts of men towards evil. But by and large, if you look through the American history, you'll see that most of the time the church is compromising. And that's why we have a peaceful engagement with our world. It is not because we have such a powerful effect that they go along with us. That has happened on occasions in great revivals. But overwhelmingly, if you go through American history, and really the history in other nations as well, and you've seen the impact, overwhelmingly it is the world that has conditioned the church to its interests. That we are willing to compromise. And again, we can use examples. I'm going to pick one. Uh, example, uh, back when a man called Lyndon B. Johnson became president, uh, the churches were very vocal in opposition to his administration, to much of what he was doing, and it was starting to have a little pinch on them. It was starting to have an impact upon him, and then like, what should we do? And so LBJ and his, his group uh, devised this great thing, and the mechanism that they would use would be the IRS, and they said, well, we're going to offer tax-exempt status to churches, and, and so you can file for a 501c3, and then, oh, but if you're going to be tax-exempt, you can't say anything about the government. You can't endorse candidates, you can't uh, influence legislation, you can't do all these things and maintain your 501c3 tax-exempt status. And it basically, it was, here's, here's a wallet, and we'll pay you to be quiet. It's called hush money. And what did the churches do? Signed up. And since those days, we in this modern era, we have largely been had our heads in the ground because we have accepted a 501c3 status and we don't want to lose that because we don't want to possibly pay taxes, which, by the way, our church is not 501c3. We do pay taxes. Um, and, because, and that's why we can say whatever we want. <laughs> we have the liberty to speak. And so the church compromised. For what? For a few dollars? We compromised the position of John the Baptist to speak against the king's evil openly to such a degree that the king arrests him. And if you think John the Baptist was the only one, he was not. Go back to the prophets. Find out what happened to Jeremiah. Why was he thrown in a pit? It wasn't the people that wanted him there. It was the royalty that wanted him there. Because he spoke against their sin. And so the church is compromised. They got bought for 20 pieces of silver. And we betrayed our Lord. 
and the requirement that he calls us to to stand against righteousness. So when we use these, this concept that we should know that suffering is the universal experience of the people of God and we don't have any, we should not be looking around and saying, well, we're just in a blessed state and God has just so blessed us. We are not in a blessed state if we are not suffering. We are in a compromised state. It means that the world sees us as a non-threat. And that should concern you. If the world views you as non-threat, that means you're not doing your job. And so when we look like, act like, talk like, listen to, and we're just like the world, we, that there's no distinction between walking into a Christian home and walking into the home of an unbeliever, walking into the home of, of a religious person, that there's no distinction between any of those. There's something wrong. And the impact is is, is nil, essentially, and then the opposition is nil. Now, men like D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday had a lot of opposition, even from within their own families. Billy Sunday's family, none of them really followed after Christ. Long term, generationally. Much like many of the prophets of old and the Leaders of old, you look at the powerful and wonderful times of Josiah when Josiah is king in Judah, but how long did it last? As long as Josiah was alive. As soon as he passed, it was gone. And so as soon as that generation passed, it's gone. Prohibition is undone, and now we have the condition of the world today, just 100 years later. Could you even conceive of passing something like prohibition? That's how little impact we have on our culture. And the question asks me, well, why do we have such a small impact? Well, I am convinced we have a small impact on our culture because we are not walking in righteousness and truth as the Bible calls us to. We think we do because we're in church and we do a little bit. Maybe I change a little bit of my language. But fundamentally, we are not... uh, engaging the enemy and standing ground, we are compromising, we are constantly backing up. This is the experience of the American church. We are always on our heels. And that's, hence we have not historically had sufferings and we haven't even expected them. Well, that's changing rapidly. Or is it? How many of our churches are just compromising? Under the guise of saying, well, we must be submissive to the government authorities. We, are un- we compromise our relationship with, with righteousness of God uh, to be at peace with men. And that is error. There's no joy in that. There's no cause for rejoicing. In fact, that is cause for consternation. We should be weeping over the fact that we have no sufferings in this age uh, when we are called to it. And it is experienced by our brotherhood. Do you see that? Throughout the world. The brotherhood of the believers suffer. And we say, oh, it's just so horrible that there's martyrdom here and there's suffering there and it's so hard to be a Christian there. And oh, we're so blessed. We are not blessed. The reason they suffer is because they are being bright, shining lights in very dark 
places. But I want to share with you that their darkness in their places isn't any darker than the darkness of this place. And so the conclusion must be that it must be the light that isn't so bright here compared to how brightly they shone there. To conceive of men who receive Christ Jesus as their Savior knowing that as soon as their family finds out, there will be uh, a desire to kill them. And yet they make that faith decision and then they proclaim it to other people knowing the penalty of their old faith is their death. This is a bright, shining light that impacts a world and that produces the, the enormous growth of the church that we see throughout church history whenever there is persecution. And the question is, did the persecution cause the growth? No. What caused the growth is what caused the persecution. And that was men and women of God living out their faith fully engaged with the Holy Spirit and genuinely true to his word and, and, and illuminating the world around them with that truth. That is what caused the great revivals. That is what also caused the intermediate step of great persecutions. This is the suffering of your brotherhood in the world. And so I have for many, many years in my praying and in my teaching said what we need to learn and we need to be in the student role in Christianity because we are the immature ones. We need to be in the student position when we go and talk to internationals because they have suffered. And based upon that evidence alone, I have to conclude they have a greater spiritual life than any of us. And I need to learn. And you sent me to the Philippines, said go to this conference, meet people, and I did, and I was overwhelmed. And I am, every time I travel internationally, I'm overwhelmed. First time we went to India, I was overwhelmed. I mean, Pastor Philip is traveling around and this, is pastoring three churches every week and caring for them and all the travel involved. It's overwhelming. To send a, a Bible college student that's graduating there, and I, and I think I'm doing a great service, putting $100 in his pocket and in his Bible that I gave to him. And, and he's going back, and I've never heard from him again, and most everyone else has it. Uh, why is he going back? He's going back to the village where they burned down the pastor's house with the pastor in it, and he's going back to minister as a pastor. This is a Bible college student is teaching me about a commitment to Christ. Because I have it easy, and that should be disconcerting. Am I really walking the walk that I should be walking? Is prayer and it's and is my witness in my preaching is my influence upon those within my workplace, within my neighborhood, within my the community uh, effectual, or do I just want to smile and can't we all get along? And I'll go along with you because you're never going to go along with me. And we compromise truth. The suffering is over the whole world. Now, that is the result here in this time of genuinely opposing the evil one. Embrace yourself for it. Now, is it enjoyable? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that it's something that we like, that feels good. 
uh, but we override our emotions, we override those feelings with the comfort of knowing that we are being counted worthy of suffering for his name's sake. As the disciples said, after they were removed from the religious leadership of their nation, having been beaten and threatened. Count it all joy, the Bible says, when you fall into various trials. This requires a mindset to understand that this is not the evidence of, of God's abandonment that makes me fickle about my faith. No, it's the evidence that I am engaging the enemy as God has commanded me to, and so I should have joy. That I must be living out my faith sufficiently to produce these enemies around me at work, in my neighborhood, in my community at large, and maybe even in my church given the condition of so many of our churches. And so we are called to suffering as the evidence of a mature, active faith. And I'm not talking about suffering, oh, you know, I hit my, head, my finger with a hammer, or, or, you know, we have such, we complain and we have nothing to complain about. We are the wealthiest, healthiest, blah, 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 Christians on the planet. But we don't suffer. Not like them. But it is the common experience, it says here. It should be expected. And then he goes in in verse 10. We're going to skip the first half of verse 10. That's going to come into play next week. And it says, after you have suffered a while. Isn't that great? He doesn't say, well, if you do suffer, then this is what God will do for you in this time period. He says, after you have suffered. It is your expected, it is experienced by every true Christian in the world, is opposition from, and don't think it's just people that, are, that you have occasional contact with. Uh, Jesus Christ made it very clear that in the end times, the, your opposition is going to come from your family are going to hate you and turn you over to the authorities and say, they're bad people. Why? Because you stand for the truth. And so, once you have suffered for a while, realize that not only is that the experience of standing against evil, what? that's what the evil do to you. Okay, that's not God. God didn't abandon you. Don't run away from the faith because it costs you a little bit. Please be more mature than that. Be ready for more than that. Uh, rather, when we have an expectation of suffering, here it comes, brace yourself, here it goes. And all of you gals with pierced ears have already experienced that, right? You went to get your ears pierced. What were you expecting? They're going to point, poke a sharp object into the lobe of your ear. Um, did you not expect it to hurt? But you realize, well, I, ha I want to be beautiful more than I want to be painless. Oh, the Christians would want to be spiritually beautiful more than we want to be painless. A whole different perspective, isn't it, to it now? Because our spiritual beauty is tied to enduring the suffering, and it's expected. After you have suffered a while, now we have four powerful statements that God says, and we're only going to get to probably one or two of them this morning, <laughs> probably just one. Um, I'm trying to preach fast, but it's, I sometimes just get wound up. That's what the world does to you. That's our expected experience. When you stand up against the evil one, what will happen to you from the world's perspective? What will they do to you? Well, they are going to cause suffering. 
They are going to do it to you. They are going to oppose you. Uh, they are going to hate you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to do to you what they did to our Savior. That should be our expectation. They hated him. They wanted to stone him multiple times. They gnashed their teeth against him. They, they went and, and, and found a betrayer among his inner twelve, and they paid him off. And so the betrayal came from within his own body, if you, will call, if you want to call that his church, but of his inner sanctum he was betrayed. Because they hated what he taught, they hated what he was doing. He was leading forth in righteousness. And they hated the fact that he called them names. Is it okay for your pastor to call people names? Jesus called people whitewashed sepulchers, a brood of vipers, the blind leading the blind. You would not find that acceptable on your social media if I started saying that. You'd say, boy, our pastor's mean. You know why? Because we're compromised. Don't say anything that's going to rouse everybody's feathers. Jesus Christ roused everybody's feathers. And he was perfect, sinless. But he produced opposition. He produced that. And so that should be our experience. Having suffered for a while. So you're in this world. You're living out your faith on a level you've never even conceived of living it out before. And now uh, you're heading up against opposition. And you say, oh, this isn't working for me. And you're right. It's not working for you. Because that's not the, what the Christian walk is for. And I've seen so many Christians want to go out there and just live for Christ. And they're excited. And then, bam, they encounter that wall. And they say, oh, that's not fun. This isn't what I expected. I expected health, wealth, and, and prosperity. All, all the things that the... TV preachers tell me I'm going to get, and they hit up against that opposition, and then they compromise. They step back. They don't want to engage in the battle because they don't want to suffer because we haven't prepared one another for suffering. And by the way, all the you words in this passage are plural. None of these are singular you by yourself. Let me just throw that in there. So what we're going to talk about is when you, plural, have suffered for a while. When your church has suffered and taken its, its knocks, has demonstrated a steadfastness in the faith, please recognize that requirement to what's coming in the next four words. You have to be able to stand against the evil one, even to the point of suffering, for a while before God comes in and says, all right, this is what I'm going to do for you. Because you've demonstrated that you are strong in the faith. God has not abandoned you. He is observing you and waiting to come in and truly bless you, like we're going to be talking about here. But he is waiting for you to endure. He who endures to the end will be saved, the Bible says. You cannot come to the, to the sower and the seed passage and not understand that to be, produce fruitfulness, you have to endure what? You have to endure the heat of the sun. That's the demonstration of your rootedness in the truth. And so what is God doing? Well, you're not the seed that fell on the wayside and got snatched up and taken away by the birds. Uh, there's the, it's the rocky soil. Oh, my goodness. The rocky soil is the American church, isn't it? We spring to life, and everything's there, da-da-da-da-da. And uh, it's about half the church. 
Uh, and, but as soon as there's opposition, <laughs> dead. We just wilt against it and perish. We walk away saying, oh, it didn't work for me. Oh, God, didn't, God abandoned me. Uh, when God was just testing your faith and the sun comes up and the sun comes up on the plants, whether they are well-rooted or not well-rooted, we all get it, supposed to, and, but it's the wilting ones that become unfruitful. The other group that becomes unfruitful are the distracted, right, by the weeds, living among the weeds, and somehow they endure, but they're in the weeds, and that's the other half, the American church. But it would be interesting to see if there was real persecution, how many of the churches would just fold. Because the governor says, stop meeting, and they, oh, we're going to stop meeting. So how many churches folded in the last 20 months? I'm still encountering people who say, oh, you're still meeting? My church just meets online guy that fixed my trailer down here um, was like, you're still meeting? We changed, you know, we, we, we do it, on, we're still not allowed to meet. I'm like, it's been months. What are we doing? Compromising, because that's what we do best. We're good at it. That's why the church doesn't suffer. We're irrelevant. Because we're not obedient to God's word. So after we have suffered a while. So in order to endure suffering, you have to walk the walk and talk the talk and be faithful and stand and engage the enemy in battle. You're going to have to resist the evil one, which means you're not going to walk backwards. You're going to stand firm, dig in, and stop. It says it stops here. Then, after that has gone on for a while, after you have suffered for a while, and demonstrated that you are steadfast in the faith, then God comes upon the scene, and this is the other category of things you're going to experience before glory. This is today, in this realm, in this time. This is what God will do. But again, he doesn't do it the first day that you've suffered a little bit. Do you see it there? After you have suffered for a while then you can expect this, because this is the testing of your faith. And James tells us the testing of your faith is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And that's why we rejoice in the suffering. God's testing my faith, and I'm going to stay faithful. I'm going to keep engaged in this battle. I am not going to move. Let the world say I'm not invited to any basketball games or to anything. I'm okay with that. I'm not going to move. I will not compromise. This is the position of uh, three guys in Babylon, right? We're not compromising. Hey, you didn't bow down to that idol. Not going to do it. Well, we're going to give you one more chance. You can give us a hundred more chances. Ain't going to do it. We're going to burn you to a crisp. Okay, if that's what you need to do, we trust in the living God. And if he delivers us, fine. If he doesn't deliver us, fine. We are not going to compromise. How about one knee? No, no knees. How about just put your head down a little bit? No. That, that's Kirk's additions. Okay? The guys weren't compromise. Why? Because they resisted. They stood fast in their faith. And did they suffer? Oh, yeah. They got arrested. Are you going to get thrown into a fiery furnace? Yep. Going to get thrown in a fiery furnace. 
Oh, that we would have that kind of faith. And we want to have these four words in our life, but we forget the context of them is, first of all, you're going to live such a life that you're going to engage the enemy because he's going to attack you. You're going to suffer. That's at the hands, not of God, not of God's people, but of betrayers within the church and a society that hates God. Okay, recognize that. Just like Jesus suffered, you shouldn't suffer. And then it's going to go on for a little while as a test of your faith. Are you going to stand fast or are you going to just capitulate? Do you have any roots in the truth? Or are your, is your Christian life just on rocky ground? And if we have deep roots, we'll endure and then we'll become fruitful. And this is the fruitful part of that fruitfulness. After you've suffered a little while, here we go. Here's what God's grace is going to do for you. You're going to have the evil one attacking you, but in this world, in this time, in this experience, you're going to have some of God's grace come upon you if you endure for a little while. And by the way, this is replicated in Hebrews and Thessalonians and in many other writers, even in John's writing. And we have four words here. And I need to go through each word in six minutes. That's not going to happen. So um, we're not going to finish this all Add another sermon to the music list there for his plans. So the first thing he's going to do is perfect. Now, he's going to perfect us. And let's make it understand it's plural. Perfect us as a church. Now, when we look at the word perfect, we think of it, well, made sinless. So we're going to be this perfect church that everyone smiles, nothing's wrong. There's never any problems here. And that is not what this word entails at all. Okay? The word entails really... Uh, and because I love this, I'm going to use it because that was one of the examples, and so because it was one of the examples of one of the books, and I like it, I'm going to use it a lot, of fitting together like puzzle pieces. That you are fitted together, that you are jointed, that you are, it's like a finger joint, perfect finger joint put together in, in wood, or a puzzle pieces just perfectly fit together. I hate puzzles that are loose. Don't you? Because then you're never quite sure if that's the right piece because all the pieces are a little loose. I love the ones that fit really just snap right in there. Pow. All right, that one really goes there. I could tell. I didn't have to hammer on it and it doesn't wiggle around. Perfectly fitted is what God's promise is. I'm going to fit you together. I'm going to repair you and join you together and make you new. That is all in this one word. And I want to look at three passages that use this one word. This is the promise of God's grace. If you endure suffering for a while, after you've suffered for a while, not day one, not day ten, a while, here's what you can expect from God's grace. He's going to fit you back. He's going to repair you. Let's go to uh, Hebrews 13. We're going to see how he repairs us. How is he going to refit us into his uh, work, into his kingdom, into uh, his uh, grace? Let's go to Hebrews 13. And we're going to start in verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete. There's that word again of perfect in First Peter. It's now translated complete here 
in the New King James, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well, pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And doesn't it interesting that the last part of that verse sounds like the last part of the verse we're going to be studying next week. So we're going to be made complete. Notice the, the connection. It is the working of the power of Christ's sacrifice in us so that we can do even more for God. There have been times in my ministry life that I felt like ministering out here in the middle of New Mexico, uh, it was, was kind of like Paul, you know, where, where did he go in Tarsus for 12 years, 8 years, whatever it was? Uh, of Moses, you know, going out there in the wilderness and having to tend sheep for a while. And I'm like, well, God's just put me on a back burner. You know, I got kicked out of the mission. I, uh, I, and, and instead of speaking all over the country, I'm, I'm staying right here. And I have perfect attendance over and over and over again. <laughs> and you guys are stuck listening to these sermons. And I'm like, well, God's just put me on a back burner. And I'm okay. And, and God says, well, if you suffer for a while, you'll get fitted back in. See, Moses took a stand against the Egyptians, and he suffered for it. He was driven out of Egypt, and for many years, he was on a back burner. Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to persist? Are you going to follow me? And then comes the burning bush, and God says, I'm ready to fit you back into this great puzzle of my kingdom. I've set you aside in the corner here, but you're an important piece. And now I'm going to pop you right where you belong. And it's a prominent piece. It's an important one. And suddenly Moses' whole life radically changes again. But we forget what he suffered, the loss that he endured. And he stayed faithful, not just for a week or two, years. And similarly, we could go through others. And, and how long was Joseph in prison? How long was he a slave? And God says, okay, I'm ready to plug you into my plan. I'm fitting you back. I'm perfecting you. I am completing. You're part of my complete plan. But you had to suffer and endure for a little while to demonstrate your faithfulness that you are worthy of being in this puzzle of God's kingdom, Yet being fitted into this mechanism of working with God. So, so the work of God, the prayer for, for the writer of Hebrews was for the people to be fitted in so they could do every good work of his will. He, that we would be now pleasing in his sight, and that is that we would be effectual. And this tells us a little bit more about what's involved in being plugged back in, fitted back, repaired into this machinery of God's kingdom after being extracted for so long of, of just being put in, well, now's the time. Raise yourself, I'm going to raise you up by my grace and by the power of Jesus Christ to my glory forever and ever, but, and that's coming. But for right now, I have a work for you now. I'm plugging you back in. You thought you were just a spare part put on a shelf and forgotten after having suffered. You say, oh, I guess God's done with me, but I'm just going to keep plugging. And then God says, I'm ready to plug you back in now. And that's this word perfect, fitted, repaired, put back in with his people 
and again, that we might be pleasing in his sight and bring him even greater glory. Let's go to another use of this word. Let's go to, because there's another element involved. Not only is doing the works, but there's other aspects to this, this repair that God offers us after we have suffered for a while. Turn with me to Second, I don't know, 1 Thessalonians 3.10. 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 3.10, and we want to back up to verse 9 because, again, it is Paul's praying. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Now, I wanted to read the whole section. We're really only going to be looking at verse 10, but I wanted to read this whole section because Paul is using the exact same four words that Peter used in rapid fire. He's just fitted them into his conversation. So you see the word uh, direct our way. You see the word increase about in love. We see the word establish your hearts, blameless. And so these are the same concepts that Peter has in these boom, boom, boom. So this passage we're going to come back to next week. So you know that. So you can put a marker there for next week. But let's, we're just going to work on verse 10. It says, we pray exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking, that's that same word that we're going to fit. There, there's, there's a little bit more to complete, to finish the puzzle of your faith. We want, and we recognize that it isn't just about doing good works. It's also about being well-trained in God's word, well-taught. And historically, Baptists have always centered in on teaching rather than experiencing. We, we, and, and so we focus on preaching more than we focus on other things, and maybe too much sometimes. And, and so we still need to have fellowship. We still need to have meals together. We still need to glorify God in other aspects. Um, but the, the critical necessity is that we be uh, fitted back by being put within us every element that we need so that we can live that life of faith. And from Paul's perspective, I want to come to you and finish those little gaps. I want to close up those gaps in your faith. I want to fit these other pieces in there that it's obvious that they are lacking because you're so concerned that you've missed the resurrection. Right? That's what the Thessalonian letters are about. They were all upset because people were dying and, and Christ hadn't come back. And it's like, what happened? I didn't think any of us were going to physically die. And they confused the physical with the spiritual. And they, and they thought they'd missed the, res, the, the rapture, the coming of Christ. They thought they had not measured up. And so all these fears and concerns were there in the Thessalonican church. And so Christ, Paul says, I need to come and perfect what's lacking your faith. Remember, in 1 Peter be steadfast, so resist the devil, resist him. Be steadfast in the faith, okay? One of the benefits, one of the things that's going to help you remain steadfast in the faith is to be well-grounded in the faith, to know what you believe and what it means to believe that. Okay, I think a lot of the American churches know what they believe, but they don't know what it means to believe that. 
That's why we wrote that bioethics statement. So you can understand that this is what it means to be this. To believe the Bible, this is what it means. So we have doctoral statements, and we know what we believe, but we don't always know what it means to believe that. What does that look like in our decision-making, in our lifestyle, in our relationships? And, of course, Peter's all about relationships, right? As a, as one of the other of the three major themes of Peter. And so he says, listen, I want to perfect what's lacking in your faith. If you're going to be steadfast in your faith, it would be, sure help to have all the pieces there. And that's why there are no, um, there should not be any big question marks. Oh, we don't really know what the Bible teaches about this. And, and to encounter that, and, and I've encountered that in other pastors. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, a, I've had pastors tell me, I'm not a theologian. I can't handle that. I can't address that. You have to go to a seminary professor talk about that. I was like, why? When I go internationally, they're discussing it all over the place. They're engaged. Why? Because they understand their job is to perfect, to fit in all the pieces of the faith so that people can remain steadfast in it, to give them and fill in all those gaps so they can see the whole picture and then they can resist. They can stand. They can be vigilant. And so it was, he says, I'm going to teach you because there's some things lacking and it's, and it's making you doubt and it's making you afraid. And doubt and fear should never be in the Christian psyche. And it, it means that there's something lacking in your training in God's word and that's why God's given us pastor teachers is to fill in those gaps so there is no doubt, there is no fear, there is no backing away from the fight. There is no uh, disconcert over things that happen around me. I stand fast because I see the whole picture. And so sometimes it's our fault for leaving too many gaps in your faith that like the Thessalonians created the fear, created the doubt. And Paul says, I need to finish my job. I want to come, and I'm praying that I can come, see your face, and, and perfect what is lacking of your faith. I want to see your face and strengthen your faith. And Paul did this in the churches. He would go through with the gospel, and then he'd go through again to make sure that they were perfected, that they could, because now they've, they've lived the Christian life a little bit. They kind of have, they've, they've, they've matured enough to get out of milk, and when they're ready for meat, he comes back through. And that's when they selected the leadership of the churches, when they were a little more mature. But he knew that he had to teach them more. Well, there's one other passage that I want to go to where this is used. That's in 2 Timothy, because there's another element to this that is critical as well that needs to be in our life to be perfected, be repaired, to be fitted back into the work of God, and that is 2 Timothy 3. And this should be a passage that's very familiar to you. We use it in our doctrinal statement, um, use it a lot in our study of, of the Bible, but again, we have, we have really good knowledge of doctrinal statements about the Bible, but we don't know what that means. So what? What does that mean to believe that? So let's read this. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be, there's our word, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And again, just like Hebrews, there's the connection that being complete is about 
Now you are ready to do more for God, not less. You're ready to do every good work. Well, what does it require? It requires that you be completed, that you be fitted back in, that the man of God may be ready to be fitted into the work of God, what God has entailed for you, that we are well fitted to uh, God's will, that we're going to now do his will. Not my will. I'm not going to do things the way I want to do it, not the way the world tells me I should do it. I'm not here to market Christ. I am here to share Christ and the offer of salvation to others. So I don't go to the marketing world. I don't go to the advertisement world to find out how to do this. I go to God's word and I say, how do I do it? I want to share my faith. Well, we use scripture to find out how we should share our faith, even in these times, which is what our Sunday night study is all about. How do we share Christ in the end times? We don't have to imagine it, kind of try to bring it up in our brain. We got to study God's word better. And so all scripture is given for that reason. And we have to let it powerfully impact our life. And we should be in God's word on a regular basis, not only in being taught it, like Paul taught the Thessalonians, but we should be in it ourselves. We have what Paul taught. We have what Peter taught. It's right here. It's in your Bible. These are, what they, these are the truths they taught. This is what John taught. This is what these men taught. Uh, and even if we go into uh, church history, we find this reliance upon these scriptures. All scriptures are given. And Peter's going to bring out some information in 2 Peter when we get there about the, the writings of Paul. He's going to reference them in 2 Peter uh, that some pervert to their own uh, peril. And, but no, we have these scriptures. If we've known them from a childhood, if we back up a few verses in, in 2 Timothy, you've known them from a childhood, they're able to uh, uh, make you wise for salvation, but that's not all they're there for. They're not just to save you. We don't have our children reading God's word and memorizing it just for them to make a commitment to Christ uh, one time to get saved. We want them to follow Christ all their days. And so not only is it there to save you, back there in verse 15, it is there to teach you, that's doctrine, reprove you, that's cor and correct you, that's tell you you're wrong and then tell you how to be right, that's what those two words entail, and then to instruct you in righteousness. So you get your doctrine and then you know what it means. That's the last phrase, instruct in righteousness. So now I need to walk righteously and godly in this present age. How do I do that? Well, I need to be in God's word. I need to know how to do that. And that doesn't mean just I increase my knowledge of God's word, but I have to let it impact my life and transform me into the image of Son Jesus Christ. When that happens, as that happens... I'm going to encounter opposition in the world, because, and, and sometimes within the church, because I'm going to try to live out my faith in a radical manner. And I have friends that I've encountered done that, and I was like, boy, it's weird. And I realized, well, that weirdness is probably more biblical and godly than my normalness. Yeah, think about that. So that, that opposition can become one within the church. And so we, we find that I'm going to grow in my faith. I'm going to allow it to impact me. I'm going to live righteously in an unrighteous world, and I'm going to have opposition. That opposition is going to come. I'm going to endure it. I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to be steadfast in my faith. I am going to engage in the battle by holding my ground, uncompromising. 
Then, verse 17 happens. Do you see the order? It's the same order. It's the same as Thessalonians. It's the same as Hebrews. Then comes being fitted in to Christ's work. Now you have a place. Now you can be joined, rejoined into the, the, the working part of the machinery of the kingdom. You'll be complete. Ready to do more work for Christ. But what does it require to get to that point? Well, suffering is the intermediate state. The previous state is that I have to be ready to let God's word instruct me in doctrine. I have to let God's word reprove me, and that means that we have to humble ourselves and our pride keeps that from happening. Or our love of something other than Jesus keeps that from happening. You know, if you love others more than me, you're not worthy of me, Jesus said. And that includes family and stuff and experiences, you love those more than me, you're going to have to let God's word reprove you through the Holy Spirit. That means, that means convict you that you are not what God wants you to be in this age. Correction, what should I be in this age? And instruction in righteousness, what is the best God has for me in this age? That's what righteousness is. It is God's best. And I'm sorry that so many, especially Western Christians, don't choose God's best. They just choose, well, you know, will God be angry if I do it? You know, how close to, I just don't want to lose my salvation. But I don't want God's best. Righteousness is God's best. I want to be the best for his kingdom. When you're at that position and you're going to suffer because you live out these things, you let the Bible uh, <laughs> drive your living, your decision-making, how you engage your relationships. Uh, you let the Bible drive those things, and you become the radical mommy and the radical wife and the, and the radical um, neighbor and, and that's going to share Christ and, and live Christ and be righteous no matter what. Um, <laughs> you're going to have opposition, but then it says now with that in place, with your doctrine, your reproof, your correction, your righteousness in place, now you can be complete. You can be fitted into the work of God and say, you're thoroughly equipped now. And I would contend that until suffering has engaged, we're not completely equipped to be fitted into the kingdom. Is it fun? No. Um, is it something we look forward to? Not really. Does it catch us by surprise? Yeah. Unfortunately, it does. It shouldn't, but it does. We're usually surprised by where it comes from. I don't know why we don't think family can be the instruments of our suffering. I'm not sure why we think uh, that brethren in our fellow church members can't be the instrument of bringing this kind of suffering. When the Bible warns us that that is the case. Grievous wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. I don't know why we let down our guard and think that we shouldn't be injured there and suffer. And so then we backpedal, we abandon the faith instead of 
engaging and holding our ground. Brethren, hold your ground. Know the scriptures. And one day, by God's grace, in his time, when you have demonstrated your faithfulness, you'll be ready to be plugged back in, fitted, repaired into the machinery and the, the, the building, the puzzle of God's kingdom. Today, not in the future. That's today's experience. While you're still on this earth, is what he's referring to here, that will be fitted back for good works. And again, for every good work here in 2 Timothy 3, Hebrews, uh, in Thessalonians, all of those. And so we have this fullness now, understanding of this one thing, that God's grace will provide for us after you, we have suffered a while. Okay, let's meet the qualification. After we have suffered a while, then that. In order to suffer for a while, I have to live righteously and godly in this present world. That kind of radical Christian living will honor, you don't have to look for it, it will come to you, you stand your ground, Satan will start throwing his fiery darts at you, if you're well equipped, you will endure, and you endure to the end, we saved, and you will have the thrill of experiencing being plugged back in, repaired into, refitted into his workings. And again, we have so many wonderful examples. So we are refitted. <sighs> Not going to get to another one. Next week we're going to finish this list. I hope you're looking forward to it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us, for the testimony of your word and its consistency. We thank you for the example of Christ and all that he has accomplished for us, but we know that while we have so great a salvation that we thoroughly enjoy its privileges and promises that it came at great suffering on your part, leaving heaven's glory to dwell among sinful men, to be hounded and chased and hated and despised by them, and then to be cruelly crucified by them. And yet you looked past that and saw the joy of our redemption. And Lord, we thank you so much. Help us to look beyond our suffering and the joy of your kingdom's work in the hearts and minds of people who today are, are, have made themselves our enemies, who, have, who hate you, who curse you, who despise us for following you. Lord, Find us willing to suffer. To show them our commitment to your truth, to righteousness that is above the law. And Lord, where we are lacking in our faith, keep us in your word that we might be strengthened, built up, that we might be steadfast. Lord, we know the evil one is, is very active in these days, has many allies among men of power. Lord, your spirit is still God. Your son is still God and is at work in us, perfecting us in your kingdom. And for this, we thank you. We anticipate to be active agents of your dominion 
until you call us home. We thank you for your grace to enable us not only to endure suffering, but to participate afresh in uh, your kingdom's workings. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.